Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. On today's episode, I sit down with the one and only Mandy Cordero, who is our youth pastor, and she tells us her story. We are very excited to have, not in the studio, but in her separate house, uh, Mandy Cordero on the podcast. Mandy, welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we figure that during the quarantine season might be the best time for people to get to know their pastors. So I just kind of wanted to walk through your story with you and talk about where you come from and where you found value both in church or where church may have angered you. And just hear kind of what led you to being the youth pastor here at Paradox. Cool. Awesome. So let's begin with where did you grow up and tell us a little bit about your parents and your home life that you grew up in. Awesome. Um, Well, I grew up here in Southern California. Um, What I would consider as my childhood home probably wasn't really until I was about, I don't know, 13 or so. I grew up on 15 acres of orange groves and all of the things. And it was a lovely, it was a lovely place, had a little creek and river running through it. Uh, Just in Mentone, if you know where the Christmas tree farm is there, it's right by the Christmas tree farm in Mentone. They were our neighbors. And so grew up there and it was a, it was a lovely place to grow up. It was where my parents had a workshop. They had their own business. My parents were a little bit unsure of the politics within the tradition that I grew up in and my dad took a break from teaching in that religious tradition and started a business called Wild Science or Imagination Gallery. It depends on who you're talking to. It's called Imagination Gallery, but the exhibit's called Wild Science. And what it is, is it's this interactive science museum that travels around to state and county fairs all over North America. And it's brilliant with giant bubbles and uh, lightning machines and hang time see how long you can hang kind of structures and it ranges from uh, all sorts of physics to um, biology to chemistry it's it's kind of this huge range of just teaching teaching kids the magic of of science and so I grew up traveling from about May to the end of September with my parents to all of these fairs I was definitely a carnival kid and this is where I got to know your parents first was they came to our Adventist Academy's um, family camp and they did yes. their their traveling experiments. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. And I wished church could be like this every Saturday uh, yes. because it was so interactive and so uh, so visual. I mean, it's it's all the cool science experiments that you could possibly want. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just, yeah, the science shows are awesome from uh, like the typical clear water to purple water back to clear again, which uh, you're actually making x when we do that. Fun fact for you. <laughs> um, things to elephant toothpaste and things with um, 
liquid nitrogen. It's just, it's so much fun. Um, all of my science experiments as a kid were kind of off the chart. Like I'm sure parents were like, she cheated. Her parents did this for her because of my childhood, but I didn't. I just knew all of these experiments from my, from my childhood and from watching my parents do them for so long, which was awesome and loved it. Now, you said that they, they went to this life because of a political issue with the church. Yeah. Were you alive, or do you have any memory of that, or was that all pre-Mandy? It was pre-Mandy, definitely pre-Mandy. Um, I was, I think they started to to do science shows at malls was uh, their first initial thing, and my dad would actually get his students to help lead those science shows for extra credit and for, cla- for class credit, in essence. Uh, but then, you know, politics in in the church got really just challenging. And so he decided he needed to take a take a step away. So even though it was pre-Mandy, it was definitely an it definitely had an effect. So whereas most not most, but a much of a lot of people in my religious tradition will often go to a uh, parochial school and my parents were were having none of it particularly my dad was like absolutely not like they need to know the real world first so i went to private schools but they were never christian schools growing up and church wasn't necessarily a big thing we were strictly sabbath school kids and yeah what I, is what does that mean strictly sabbath school kids strictly sabbath school kids we would go to our version of sunday school so uh, we would go to church every week only for Sabbath school finish as soon as we finish the craft at the end of the lesson we would head back home and never go to church except for Easter and Christmases okay nice yeah. nice now this is a bit of a surprise to me because I met you when you were at an Adventist Academy uh, during your senior year and I was a youth pastor how yes. did you go from non-Adventist school to an Adventist high school I think um, there was some. There was definitely a little bit of challenges at some of the, at some of the schools that I went. I was a little bit of a of an oddball. I was, uh, I was had like the big round Harry Potter glasses and roller backpacks and was a nerd at heart. Um, and I was also very reactive. I I have ADHD. And we didn't know it at the time, but uh, because of ADHD, I was, I had this, it's like a, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, I go red really quickly if someone makes me upset or angry and my classmates figured that out and loved to, loved to pick on me just to see that side of me. And so they started realizing it wasn't necessarily a healthy space. Uh, the kids in that, uh, in that specific school were talking about things that you would hope fourth graders wouldn't be talking about. And so my parents were like, maybe it's time to start considering a Adventist school. And so they went and interviewed a ton of Adventist schools. And my mom's question for all of the schools before we before she decided on one as their test was, so what do you feel about Halloween socks? And depending on their <laughs> was, answer, yeah, that was their test. <laughs> that was the litmus test for, exactly. for whether or not it was okay. Yes. That's an interesting one. Well, it was fascinating because almost all of them said, no, no, she can't wear Halloween <laughs> socks. <laughs> 
which was so sad. And I mean, I was, this goes to like how much of a nerd I was as a kid. Like I was all about the holiday socks. Like if they had bells and glitter and all the things, I was like down for it. Um, and so things like no Halloween socks would be highly disappointing for me. <laughs> so yeah, but that was their, that was their litmus test is how, what about Halloween socks? And so they finally found one, um, went to the school for a year, uh, was not academically challenging. And so they ended up switching over my junior high year. So seventh grade over to Loma Linda Academy where I was, yeah, reintroduced to a, I don't know, a more stable or consistent, maybe more consistent contact with Christianity and with Adventist Christianity in specific. And at this point, were you baptized? No, I was not. When no. did you get baptized? I got baptized my, well, I was actually baptized twice. Fun fact for you. Uh, the oh, first you time I was baptized, I was baptized when I was 14 years old. So that was the summer of my freshman year of high school. And yeah, that and was. what led to that decision? Yeah, it was, it was an unusual decision I think versus many of my many of my peers at the time the one thing that I don't think Christian schools do well there's a point to this I know it seems like a sidetrack but there's a point to this the one thing that I don't think Christian schools do well is religion class and I happened to be in a religion class at that point that the teacher was a very genuine human being, but I also think he was a very lazy teacher. And so he gave, he shared a movie instead of teaching classes quite frequently. And this movie happened to be a revelation movie and revelation movies for anyone who might know are just like the perfect hour long movie to horrify kids into salvation is essentially the purpose of it. And so it's like, 50 minutes of God is going to send all of these curses to the world and completely destroy the world. And, oh, like, you better hope that you're good enough. And most people aren't good enough, even if they think they're good enough. And it's terrifying. And it's red and black and all of these dark, like, horrible um, colors when combined with this ominous music. And then the last five minutes are, oh, those lucky few are going to make it. And then it's credits. And it was horrible. I went home that night and was freaking out. Um, I am normally a very optimistic, outgoing, bubbly kind of person. And I just was a completely different person. Our family was eating out on the on our front porch at the time. And my dad was like, what's wrong? And I said, I'm afraid that I'm not going to go to heaven. I'm afraid that God doesn't exist. I'm afraid that I... Uh, I'm a really bad person and that I'm unlovable by God. And my dad was like, that's ridiculous. Like, of course, none of those things are true. Like, why, why would you say that? And then I just, I started breathing really heavy and I started having difficulty catching my breath and I ended up having my first anxiety attack. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, uh, it was tough times to be honest. And I, uh, I fell on the floor, started crying, had difficulty breathing. Um, I had this thing that I wasn't able to pick up until I went to therapy where I will scratch my legs and it's my way of trying to, it's almost like a 
a way of grounding. Like I'm trying to feel something so I don't feel whatever is going on inside. Um, my dad has experience with anxiety attack. Um, he has ADHD too. I take after him in many ways. And so he came over, grabbed me in a really tight hug and just walked me through breathing. Okay, breathe in, hold it, breathe out. And he like he walked me out of a panic attack. And so we had a really, a really long conversation that evening about what is God and what is is God good? Is God loving? Is there purpose in this world? Is there meaning? And uh, my dad's a science teacher and loves science. And we happened to have a beautiful garden at the time. And he had me go pick my favorite rose. And the people who were there before had planted all of these beautifully exotic roses. And I picked my favorite one, which was like a candy stripe one. It was white and red stripes through it. And brought it to my dad. And my dad said, here you go. Like, let me talk to you about the thorns and the petals and how they all work together to create this beautiful plant. And it was the start of, it was the start of me realizing that religion wasn't, wasn't, maybe let me say it this way. Religion didn't have all of the answers. Religion was a lot of unknown. And at some point there had to be a leap of faith and that doubt was going to be a partner in my religious experience and so I was very terrified, and that video still haunted me. I had panic attacks almost, uh, if, if almost every week, every day, sometimes uh, for for a really long time. Would attend therapy quite frequently, and uh, that video haunted me. So at some point, I was like, "I'm going to get baptized, and maybe that'll more be more as insurance than anything else." Yes, or? yeah, yeah, a lot oh, yeah. more like insurance. I remember it being a very exciting time when I got baptized. Like I remember this huge relief swelling over me. And I'm like, I'm never going to doubt Jesus again. Life's going to be great. Um, and my mom was like, no, you can't have that opinion. And she was very adamant about her own religious experience because when she was baptized, she was under the impression that she would never sin again. And lo and behold, that afternoon, she did something mean to one of her brothers and she was just bald. She's like, oh my gosh, like my baptism meant nothing. And so she was like, Mandy, like, no, like you can't have that opinion. But I don't think the church did a great job of explaining what baptism was. I still don't know if they do a great job of it. Yeah. So that was the first time. And the second time was when? The second time was when I was 22, I think. 22. Um, So eight years after the first baptism? Yes. That was some quick math you did. Nice. Well, I do the best I can to subtract (laughs) eight. I I literally (laughs) Um, don't think I would have been able to do it that quickly. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit about the difference between that and what led to the second baptism. Yeah. um, So I was in a pretty rocky place with uh, religion in general. I didn't really want a ton to do with religion, although I was recently looking through some old journals and projects, school projects, and somewhere along the lines, I was like, I'm going to be a youth pastor one day. And I was like, what? That was comes from left field. I don't remember ever wanting to be a youth pastor. So I'm not when entirely... Was that? that was in high school. That was like my senior year of high school. And I am floored and flabbergasted that I wrote that because I don't ever remember wanting to do that. <laughs> I'm and what do you think drew you or subconsciously inspired you to write those words? And then we'll get to the second baptism in a minute. I probably, it was probably like, well, if I want God to love me, this is what I have to do. I, that it would be my guess. 
So it was more out of a guilt uh, reaction. Yeah, Is that totally, fair to say? totally. I think that's what what my experience as at a parochial school did for me was it changed my religious experience from one of that I was excited about and was freely questioning to one that was very guilt driven, very, I have to prove myself and earn my space in heaven. And it was a completely, it was like a complete 180 because my childhood was not like that. My parents did a great job of just embracing those questions and embracing the fun about Christianity and, and connection with others. But I think that was what my time at parochial school did was just this complete shift of rather than loving and being excited about God and pouring out that love for others, it was all of a sudden like fudge, I have a checklist and I don't meet any of them. Yeah. Yeah. So you felt that way your senior year in high school. Did you hold on to the idea of being a youth pastor then from that point on? Or no, what was your plan after you graduated not. from high school? I didn't really have a plan. I went to university and I was like, I'm going to be undecided. And then I went through like eight different re- like majors before <laughs> before finally landing on something. So I was... Name as many as you can remember. Okay. I went from undecided to accounting, which I loved. Fun fact for wow. you. It was just a puzzle. Um, granted, I only got through intermediate accounting, so I don't know if I would like the higher version. <laughs> so accounting, uh, went to marketing, advertising... Uh, liberal arts, so teaching, um, liberal arts with an English emphasis, English writing, and that's where I ended. Well, I'm missing something. Communication. <laughs> I had communication somewhere in there, too. In art. Somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was a, I was, un, I was undecided fully, but I'm glad that I did. I think each of those majors taught me something and when I landed on English writing because that's when I ended up graduating with was English writing I I loved it um absolutely loved it uh this how many years did it take you to graduate it took me six years to graduate undergrad so (laughs) that's an interesting question because it also you have to keep in mind that I was a student missionary for two years so where'd you go I went to Laos so and for any of those who might know might not know where Laos is. It's landlocked between China, Cambodia, Myanmar, Vietnam, and did I say Thailand? Thailand. I don't think so. Okay. I'm going to say Thailand now. Yeah. There you go. Um, and so, yeah, I did that for two years with a, a group called Adventist Frontier Missions. And they're a lovely group, a little bit more traditional than I am. I think they were very rocked by someone from Southern California coming in and being like, oh, yeah, I have all of these opinions, and I don't know if evolution's necessarily wrong, and I don't know if uh, being queer is necessarily wrong. And I was very much on my own journey, and they were just like, who are you? <laughs> and to their credit, <laughs> I think they did a really great job of uh, loving me and empowering me, even though we were so different. Um, and so love that group of people, love them to pieces. I went, I went because I had finally reached that English writing major and didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I said, screw this. I, I have to go, I have to go, I have to do something, anything else so I can figure out my life. And so I went to Now, what was the first moment that you realized at Laos that you weren't cut from the same cloth as the other missionaries that were there Ooh, <laughs> the first day <laughs> is that <laughs> first day yeah so what happened on the first day 
Um, met with some of the career missionaries and one of the career missionaries. I please everything I say. No, I love and adore these people. And so this might paint them in a bad light, but they are good, loving human beings. But the first day I, um, I, yeah, had lunch with one of the career missionaries and he said, so, um, you go to, you go to last year university. And I was like, yeah, I go to last year university. And he said, so do you believe in evolution? And I was like, oh, oh no. gosh, like, like I met you two minutes ago. I'm not entirely sure how fair this is. Um, so by the way, that question in itself is a tell. Oh, 100 percent. There's no scientists that say, do you believe in evolution? <laughs> <laughs> There's no, that's not yes. that's not the question. Yes. Um, <laughs> And that's like, as, as soon as I know for me, whenever someone asks me that question right away, I'm like, oh, here we go. Yes. I, I don't have to wait and see what side they're on because the mm -hmm. fact that they're asking if I believe in it is the moment that I know that this is going to be a very different conversation than yes. what is based in science. Yes. And this was kind of my continual experience there. The one thing that I have to say about this group of people is while they were, you know, significantly more traditional, is they were very much supportive of my own journey, very much supportive of uh, of my my search for God, I think they probably expected me to, to land in a different way than I actually did. Um, but I, they were very supportive. Um, and, uh, and while those questions were alienating at first, I ended up really finding value in them because it helped refine a lot of what I believed. And I think helped point out and clarify in my mind why some of their arguments weren't good enough, if that makes sense. It does. I had, I, I've, I had that from the opposite angle of hmm. one of my best friends was an atheist in college. Oh yeah. And so he would, he would ask the same questions from the other side. Hmm. And this is a big thing I try to talk to people that go to seminaries or do religious education mm -hmm. is I ask people all the time that I say, the question is, what do you want a faculty that's more conservative than you or one that's more liberal than you? Oh, 100%. Either way is good <laughs> because true. they're going to ask you the same questions. It will sound very different. Yeah. But um, it's just a the way that you like to process things. Very true. Authority comes at you and says, no, actually, we need to keep it the way it was. And you'll know that's intuitively wrong. And the other side will be like, is there anything of value that you actually believe? And you'll say, um, yeah, let me think about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think. And in some ways, I think that it was. I think that this was the journey that I needed to take, right? Like coming from this parochial school that all of a sudden I had to experience what it was like to be a checklist Christian. Um, and then jumping into, I think if I were to come from that space and jump into a space where it was just like, we're going to deconstruct everything. I don't think I would have yeah. been ready for it. And so yeah. instead I was able to jump into this lovely group of people that was safe enough to, to really explore with and they, they asked me questions and I asked them questions and I was able to experience some of the things that I found really beautiful about the way that they practice religion and also the things and explanations and theology behind some of the things that they did that I found insufficient. 
I remember very clearly one time a super passionate, lovely young guy was super stoked about God, just wanted to love all of the people. And he decided that our church wasn't necessarily a fit and went to worship at a church, a non-denominational church that worshiped on Sunday. And my peers were very upset and sad about this. And I remember being like, but but why? (laughs) Why are you sad? I don't understand. Like he found a home and they said, well, no, he's not worshiping on the Sabbath anymore. And so he's, he's going to, he's going to be lost. And I said, what? You think he's going to be lost because he wishes he worships Jesus on Sunday versus Saturday. And they said, yeah. I said, well, what about all of the, most of the world worships on Sunday? And they said, oh, but he, they don't know the truth. He knows the truth. And I just, I was such a, where is the grace of God in this? Where is the love of God in this? And I found that to be incredibly toxic and insufficient, insufficient. Well, and, and just by him going to that church on Sunday, it's confronting what they, I mean, it's really confronting everything they believe, mm-hmm. um, even though it's like all this passive confrontation, because mm. essentially he's seen the quotes, truth of the Sabbath yeah, and has said there's something lacking here. Absolutely. And that, that gesture essentially just makes it so it's instantly like this, um, this critique of the whole system, even though this guy's just like, I'm just, I think it's better over there, guys. Yes. Yeah. Very true. And he, you know, the poor guy couldn't understand why everyone was treating him all, all of a sudden very differently. And I felt so bad for him. Um, and it's just, it's, it, you know, they proved his point in reacting the way that they did. No, I was just saying, so things like that, like it just kind of helped refine my experience and yeah. What is the biggest change in belief that you experienced from before Laos to after Laos? Like what was the biggest change that you were like, oh, I used to believe this. And then once you left, Mm. you're like, I definitely don't believe that. Or I now believe this. Hmm. Very good question. I think there's a couple of things. I'm going to go with a belief and then a practice. So I'll start with the practice first. Laos was the first time that I attended a church and invested in church regularly in my life. Wow. So it was the first time that I saw the power of journeying alongside and with a community, both as a member and as a leader. I was a leader for the AY, which is Adventist youth group there, and did a couple of Bible studies for the young men and the young women, as well as ran the English Sabbath school while I was there. And it was the first time that I had ever first attended church, like attended church frequently every week, and the first time that I was pouring out into a community and I fell in love with it I I honestly it's it's hard to find the words it's such a sacred and holy thing to be able to say I know these people and I know their stories and for some reason they've entrusted me with sharing a little bit of wisdom and a little bit of uh, a little bit of life and love in their space and that's just was a huge gift and so my love for church was developed, was found and developed there. 
And so that was critical into my journey in becoming a pastor was that was that specific love for church and church community. Describe what this church was like, because I'm guessing it wasn't mm. like lights and drums and electric bass. No. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, <laughs> they were, you know, they, it was very traditional. Um, they did hymns, um, but hymns in Lao, uh, which I always, I always find very funny. I always find very funny when they, they work with a completely different type of musical system and then we're singing hymns. And you ask them about any English sounding songs or Western sounding songs. And they're like, oh, it sounds so ugly. And then we like force these English sounding, very rigid hymns on them, (laughs) Um, which is very colonialist of us. I apologize. But they would often bring their own twist to it. So they would have their Lao instruments and they would these kind of embellishments where it's like uh, there's a specific word for it, but it's like they go back and forth between two notes and when they're holding out a note on an instrument. Um, and it's uh, it was actually a very cool thing to see. It was uh, a sermon in Lao, very read every every day or every week, I should say. It was it was a barefoot church. You showed respect by taking off your shoes. And so you would take off your shoes before you entered the church and it was very dusty and dirty and your feet got really gross afterwards and it was just great. Uh, kids running and screaming everywhere, um, You especially during music, uh, which I actually, first every time I see kids at Paradox kind of jumping and singing and dancing, it always feels a little bit like home because that was the tr- kind of church that I found my love for church in was this one that just unabashedly celebrated kids and their their zest for life. We had potluck afterwards. And yeah, I don't know. It was very simple. It was very simple. Occasionally we would have a translator and then the service went long. Yeah. But very simple. what, What was the changed belief then? The changed belief, I think this was where I during this time was where I first became convinced that God was a loving God. And that didn't come necessarily because of conversations with people. I decided with one of my friends there who came with me that we were going to not take anybody's word for what they said that the Bible said. And so we decided we were going to read through the Bible And I did it twice because the first time I read Genesis through Revelation straight and uh, no one had ever bothered to explain to me that the Bible wasn't written in chronological order. (laughs) So (laughs) I was very confused when, you know, in one book, Elijah dies and in two books later, Elijah's back alive. And I was like, what the heck is happening? (laughs) It's just like a Marvel movie. Don't worry about it. I I know. I was like, what is happening? So I ended up rereading through chronologically in the way that they think the events happened. Um, which has you hopping between, um, you know, Psalms and Chronicles and, uh, you know, all the things, which is, is super cool. It, I, I think it's a great way to experience the Bible. I also think that this, this helped me in a number of ways. It helped me see the humanness in Scripture. I think the, my friend who was reading it would, be, would probably be a little bit uncomfortable with me saying that, but I, the humanness of Scripture just came out so thoroughly this idea that every every 
single word was written specifically by God or the idea was implanted in the minds. And so it came out as God wanted, but in the way that the author would like to say it was just something that I, I couldn't get behind. Like these were very human stories. They were human stories of greed and lust and anger. And then these little bouts of encounters with God that seemed to somehow shed light and make things better. That was just came out so clear to me. And then I got to Revelation, and that was the hardest book to read because I had been so traumatized. And it was one of the few days during my time there that I took church off. And I curled up in the chair in my room. I put on soft piano music i drank tea in essence i was doing everything to postpone me reading (laughs) revelation um but also to make it kind of a cuddly space and i just remember praying like over and over and over god i just i need to see your love in this i need to see i need to see how you show up and while i read it and i was still uncomfortable with at least my interpretation of revelation at the time which was very much a um, an eschatological, it, it tells the future, apocalyptic kind of interpretation. Um, I kept seeing these phrases, um, God, you know, God, they still didn't turn back to God. They still didn't turn back to God. And there was this this huge, I, I sensed this huge yearning for, for God to be with all people. And while I now know that there's a lot more to the book than what I had experienced in that moment, in that moment, that was enough for me to realize and to believe in a loving God. And so I left there with a love for church and a belief in a loving God, even though I didn't fully understand what that meant. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then did you get baptized when you returned or was that before? did. Um, I got baptized when I returned. It was about a year after I returned. I had come into or come back to school and decided I was, oh, I forgot. I was in nursing, a pre-nursing. Oh, wow. Just got to collect them all. (laughs) I know. I totally forgot. I never took a single class for that one, so I don't really claim it (laughs) because I signed up for pre-nursing. And then in addition to my English writing degree, and then I... Um, I took a class called biblical literature and this was one of the first classes was taught by one of my favorite professors, Dr. Dr. Garrigus. She's phenomenal. She's one of the few teachers who's ever given me a B on something that I've written. And I appreciate her so much for it because she was, she knew what I was capable of and she was not willing to, to settle. And so I loved her, but this was the first time that I ever heard of anyone taking the biblical text and trying to understand it from a secular worldview, uh, uh, maybe not even secular, just a like a a literary analysis. Literary analysis, yeah. And I just thought that was fascinating. Like you got so many other things from this incredible text that I had already learned to love and appreciate so much when you just took out all of the tradition and the weight of religious like interpretation you took all of it out like you got all of this new stuff which was super cool and so there I decided I I wanted to be a religion um, minor in addition to my English writing degree 
And so as I was taking those classes, this, again, this love for God, this, this, my eyes opening to just how wrong the religious institution has it in terms of, it's not about what the gospel keeps out. It's about what the gospel lets in, like, and it's everybody, you know, and that was so foundational for me. But then I didn't know where to get baptized because a lot of what I believed didn't line up with the Adventist church. I didn't believe that um, same-sex marriage was sinful or same-sex love was sinful. I didn't, I didn't believe that creation was a literal seven days or that evolution was wrong. I didn't believe, I mean, I could go down the whole list. I didn't believe that everyone is going to go to hell if they don't say I believe in the name of Jesus Christ and accept him as my personal Lord and Savior. Like, I didn't believe any of that stuff. Um, and so then it became, where do I get baptized? And so I met with I met with uh, Chris Oberg, who's the lead pastor at Leicester University Church. And I said, I'd like to potentially get baptized by you kid we have a meeting and so we went over all of the fundamental beliefs of the adventist church nice and we all 28 each all 28 of them <laughs> and uh we i walked through each of them with her and i told her exactly what i didn't believe about each of these beliefs um and she showed me the preamble um to the 28 fundamental beliefs which is basically saying they're which is basically saying we we this isn't this isn't law this can be changed this depending on the guidance of the holy spirit we could be wrong on some of these things of course not quite like that and i think most of the adventist church if they heard me say something like that would freak the heck out yeah. but um that's that was put there very intentionally by dr guy and um and the crew that worked on that because they didn't ever want it to be used the way that it was used and so she said it doesn't really matter <laughs> if you believe in these or not it just matters if you want to be a part of the community and yeah. so i said okay i'm in it and i got baptized and this time it was very much a i'm committing my life to this crazy thing called God who loves tremendously and is calling me to do the same. It was a completely different baptism. Wow. Yeah. And from there, when did you know that you wanted to be a pastor? Hmm. Well, I knew I wanted to be a religion teacher. That was kind of where I was going. And so I went to the, the teacher interviews that they had and I interviewed with them. And as I was interviewing, I just got this very odd feeling why am I doing this? This feels <laughs> very weird to me. And I, I just, yeah, I just wasn't super stoked. And so I went back and I, I talked to Joe and Joe and I had been dating about three years at that time. And I said, I think, I think I'm not supposed to be a religion teacher. And he's like, really? And I said, yeah. Um, and at this point, Joe and I had been dating for three years and we had been working together for planning our Friday night Vespers program for the university and I mentioned at that point I think I feel called to be a pastor I feel think I feel called to be and journey be with and journey with a church community and Joe was like yeah that makes sense 
And I was like, okay, cool, 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 cool. I'm glad like <laughs> the person I love most and knows me best in this world agrees. That's awesome. And went to one of my mentors at the time, Sam Lenore, and I said, I said the same thing to him. And he says, I'm so glad that you have reached this conclusion because I've been feeling this way for a really long time. And so that was incredibly affirming to me. And yeah. I just kind of shifted gears at that point. Wow. And so then you graduated, but then you got a master's degree, right? I did. Master's in theological studies. So good. How and long was that could degree? Be, it was, I think I finished it in three years. Okay. I got married in that time. So it would have taken me two, but I was okay. like, I can't. So three years. Yeah. Now, now take us through everything from when you decide you want to be a pastor to what happened, you know, trying to get a job and all of that stuff that happened mm. shortly after that decision. Yeah. Um, man. So I ended up interning for a little bit at Luster University Church. And uh, when I graduated and started working on my master's degree, I, I, I knew I had a job there, but I was really hoping to find some other jobs. I, I, did, I did get offered a full-time job at one church. It wasn't a conference hire position, but there was just something a little bit off. I didn't, I didn't quite know what it was. Um, and I took it, the email to one of my professors who is a woman and she read it to me and she got the same vibe and she said, run, do not take the yeah. job. Um, and a lot of it was because my husband, Joe, had interviewed for the job, ended up taking a different job. And they interviewed me and said, well, if we can't get Joe, like you're, you're, like you're a great second choice. And that was yeah. like. Yeah, not if you're looking for Joe, then you probably shouldn't have me. And if you're looking for me, you probably shouldn't have Joe because as much as I like we deeply love and respect each other's ministries, we do ministry differently, yes. very differently. Um, and it makes us such a great team, but you're not going to get one yeah. if you expect the other. And so. I've, I've sat on three different church boards, and this mm -hmm. includes Paradox, where people look at us potentially hiring someone and they say, Oh, if we hire this person, we get their spouse. And I have to constantly yeah. say, no, it doesn't work mm. that way. <laughs> right. Right. Um, exactly. But that's the assumption for mm -hmm. so many church, uh, for so many church boards is that, well, obviously the spouse will be here in support. And you're like, uh, if you not pay necessarily. Them. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. And, you know, Joe's phenomenal. Joe's beloved in, in the Adventist community. Um, he's beloved and hated, but mostly beloved um, in the Adventist community. And, uh, you know, that was that was something that was was frequently a challenge when I was going to interviews is I in some ways, while I had made a name for myself in many areas, I was always living in Joe's shadow because they only saw me as Joe's wife. And that was really hard, um, yeah. especially since I, you know, Joe told me once that I've been the greatest theological influence on him. And that's probably the best. I'm like getting emotional as I say that. Like I just that's the kindest, most beautiful thing that has ever been said to me. Like that's like I can't I don't know. That just seems like such a sacred area. And it's just like no one realizes how much how much we support each other and how much I have been so involved in his ministry and he's involved in my ministry, but we're separate. I don't know how to else to explain that. It's just, well, well and it's really hard to explain to people that have never worked for the church 
Yeah. Because it's, uh, you know, I, I had a pretty bad experience at the first church I worked at where they were mad that my wife wasn't attending the service. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you can pay her to show up to the service. And they got really mm-hmm. mad at that statement. And I said, <laughs> what, what do you not understand about all this? <laughs> yes. um, I mean, if it's that important to you, then just pay her to show up. You, you can tell me to show up because you pay me. Right. And, and they just don't like, even, like even just what many churches believe, what many people believe are progressive churches have a hard time separating, um, separating people as professionals. Very true. Very true. And then on top of that, there's just this whole, I think the other, the other thing I hit on to, um, and you said progressive churches, and this made me think of it is progressive churches often think that simply by having a woman on staff, they are progressive. Yeah. Yes. Which (laughs) is just highly disappointing on so many levels because what they, I don't think the church quite realizes, at least the Adventist church quite realizes, is that if you hire all of your women pastors as children's pastors, you're not really being progressive. And that was, that was the thing that I kept hitting. That kind of roadblock is what I kept hitting. The only interviews I ever got were for children's pastors. And I love children's ministry, but I am also very passionate about youth ministry. I could do both, but I could never be simply a children's pastor. And I would tell them that, and their response is always, well, we don't know any church that wants to hire a youth pastor. And even now as we speak, there are zero women youth pastors, sole youth pastors in the Adventist, local Adventist conference. And so I was kind of fighting, I was basically hitting a roadblock and no one was telling me I was hitting a roadblock. And that was very, very disappointing. For about well, two years. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I was just going to say, the, the other thing that most people don't know outside of ministry mm-hmm. is that youth pastor is a speaking position. Like yes. you you speak to youth when you're a youth pastor and you preach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so children's pastor is pretty rarely a speaking position. Mm-hmm. So to deny women the opportunity to be a youth pastor um, is actually denying them the opportunity to, to preach. And... I, yes. I don't know. I, I lost all my Compassio sermons when I was doing high school ministry. Oh, I'm sure they were terrible because, you know, <laughs> I had to learn, I had to learn how to preach. Yeah. And, and the good news about high school students are, or being a youth pastor is they'll forgive you. Whereas adults yes. will not. <laughs> Very true. And you say something stupid and that's not researched well, or something that is a little too challenging or a little bit too far. You can apologize to the high school students and they'll forget about it. Like, yeah. and I don't mean that to talk down to high school students. I really enjoy my time in youth ministry, mm-hmm. but when you deny, um, women, the opportunity to be youth pastors, you're actually denying them the opportunity to learn how to preach. Yes, exactly. And you know, the one thing I have to say about, uh, my time when I was working at Los University church, when I was first interning there, I was interning with the youth pastor and I was working as the, almost like an assistant youth pastor, um, doing everything with him. And so I ended up getting in these positions where I was a leader for some of the major youth conferences in the area. Um, and it was phenomenal. So 
I was able to gain the trust of that group of people. And I ended up being able to preach quite frequently to the youth and was frequently asked um, to be one of the preachers and speakers for youth conferences and youth vespers. And so I was able to get that practice in, but just because of the good graces of my colleagues, you know, um, never because I was actually able to find a legitimate position, yeah. which was incredibly frustrating, incredibly frustrating. Um, and you know, certain comments here or there, um, when I got married, a conference official told me, ah, it's so good. You're finally proving yourself as a pastor and we can hire you now. And I was like, what the, (laughs) you have, (laughs) are you kidding me? You have hired so many male pastors when they weren't married. And because I'm a woman, I have to be married in order to prove my worth or my legitimacy. That is incredibly sexist or things like, um, yeah, one one another conference official told me, ah, oh, like I, you're finally ready. You can finally preach to the youth. And I was like, I've been one of the main speakers for many of these organizations since I graduated. Like wow. I have been like I have been, you ask any of the youth pastors, I am known as someone who preaches and reaches kids. And I credit a lot of that to my English writing degree major, by the way, because I learned how to tell a story. But Mm -hmm. yeah, so just these crazy obstacles. I I think women, particularly um, in my old tradition, have to prove themselves in a way that men did not. Yeah. You have to be above exceptional to get hired, whereas men just have to be mildly mediocre. Sorry, is that mean? (laughs) Okay. It's not Um, mean. No, no, it's not. I... um, yeah, it's not it's not at all okay. because <laughs> it, the hard part to explain to that is that's that's really w- once you see it and live through it, um, mm-hmm. that's that's it. I, I I just I laugh when people talk about how women have had it better than they've ever had it, and there's not sexism anymore in the workplace. Oh gosh! And um, I just say, you know, in the church, it's actually quite a sexist hierarchy. It and totally is. And they're like, well, that doesn't count for the workplace. I'm like, oh gosh, <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So my journey has been really interesting for about two years straight. I was continually told we're going to hire you. We're going to hire you. You're at the top of our list was even one of the phrases that was used one time. And then it was just kind of radio silence for a long time would reach out and the continual thing would be, nope, there's nothing. No one wants to hire a woman youth pastor. Now, do you remember when we were doing our series in Leviticus at Paradox and you told me that you loved Leviticus and nobody ever <laughs> says that. So I was like, you should come and speak here. And the, the higher ups told you that you shouldn't come speak here. Do you remember that? I vividly remember that. I remember, Do you remember exactly when where that I was, was in this world. When? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, it was before I got married. It was, it was, I think it was shortly after I had, been rejected for a youth pastor position. Okay. It was, I think it was probably maybe the summer of 2017. Yeah. Why do you think the higher ups told you that you shouldn't speak at Paradox? I think it's because they are afraid of Paradox for a few reasons. It's close enough to to Adventism in terms of Saturday worship and it's close enough in location to some of the Adventist churches that they're afraid that members will jump ship and go to this non-Adventist church that is um, 
that will take all of the funds. And so there's a fear of losing money, I think, is a big one. I also think there's this fear of we don't want to know what our what our hired pastors actually truly believe. Um, And, you know, and I, I have to tell you a story at this point. I'm sorry. Yes, please do. Please do. <laughs> what people don't understand is, is, and this is not just limited to Adventism, but mm-hmm. uh, one of the biggest controversies throughout my entire career as an Adventist pastor and beyond has been whether or not to ordain women. And yes. the, the reason I bring all this up is because go, having gone through the ordination process, I will tell you it is the biggest joke of a process you could possibly imagine. And to give you an idea, what was that? Is it? I don't actually know the ordination process. I, okay. So I was nominated by the church, right? Okay. And the church has to interview me before they can nominate me. Then it goes to the conference and the union. Then -hmm. from there, it goes to the union by itself. And then it comes back down to the conference. I believe there's two different interviews and a paper I have to write, right? (laughs) Okay. Throughout the whole t- process and all of those things, I was only asked one theological question. No. The rest was like, oh, how do you balance time with your family? Hmm. And what's crazy is I was, I was unanimously nominated by the local church to be uh, ordained. Like there wasn't one mm-hmm. dissenting opinion. They told me it was unanimous. I was also unanimously ordained at the, the conference and union level. Mm-hmm. And a year later, I was run out because they were so shocked at what I believed. Oh, my god. And I goodness. was sitting there thinking, why didn't you ask me back then? Right. Like, if, if believing evolution is true or, or trusting the science of evolution is true, and that's a deal breaker, I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like you should bring that up. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's, and so like when I, when I talk about ordination, like I just have to laugh because everybody's got in their mind that it's this very well thought out process where they, they vet kind of who the best of the best are. It's much more, Hey, it's your turn. Let's put the stamp on and please don't tell us what you believe. I also really laugh at this whole idea that they, they care about work life balance because I, I distinctly did not get hired. (laughs) Because I dared to say I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, answer a text at 10 o'clock at night. And I just answer in the morning when I got to work. And they were very unhappy with that. (laughs) Very unhappy. Which I was like, that's not fair. Because you talk about wanting to value the life of the pastor and valuing their self-care. And I tell you, that's how I'll do it. And it just makes you unhappy. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So you came and spoke at Paradox um, for our Women's Appreciation Weekend. I did. Um, I will tell you that that, the moment you gave that sermon, that was the moment that I was like, she has to come work here. We're going to figure this out no matter what it takes. (laughs) Thank you so (laughs) much. Because you hit a a home run and it was a master, it was a masterful sermon. Thank Um, you. I'm curious if you could take us through um, why you said yes this time and... Mm -hmm. um, what changed? Because obviously it was like two or three years apart from the previous time I asked. And kind of what led into that sermon and what you wanted to say and what led to you preaching that sermon, because that's when a lot of people were introduced to you. And that was the moment, like I said, that we knew we had to hire you. Wow. Thank you. 
It's one of my favorite sermons I've ever preached, that's for sure. Um, I knew that, well, at that point, I had been, it had been me calling out to this organization that I wanted to hire me for so long, and it was just radio silent. They had completely even stopped the pretense of, of trying to make me think they wanted to hire me. Um, every time when I would meet one of the conference officials, it would often be before before the radio silence would be like, oh, Mandy, hello, we're so, how are you? We're still wanting to hire you. Please don't give up. And then all of a sudden it was just silent. And so at some point I was like, if I have been playing by your rules, I have been putting up with a, almost gaslighting, it feels like, um, for a year and a half now. And I don't even know if I want to work for this organization anymore. I wasn't, I was leaving my job at the church that I was working with and beginning um, to work at the hospital. And so at some point it was like being good and fitting into their role of what a woman pastor should be hasn't gotten me anything. And so at some point I have to decide whether I'm going to be the the woman pastor they want me to be, or if I'm going to be the woman pastor that God calls me to be. And I like, honestly, I, I left my job and it was like zero F's given. I am going to be the pastor that God created me to be. And I got the invitation from Kelly to speak for Paradox. And it was about women's affirmation. And I was I remember being so deeply honored um, because I had watched and had absolutely adored the statement that was made for the LGBTQ community and that affirmation statement. And it was so well done and so beautifully done that I just, there was this huge, like, I can't believe that they're entrusting this to me. At the same time, I I knew that me taking this speaking position would mean I was blacklisted. Um, I don't know for sure that was the case, but I suspect that was the case. I suspect that was the moment they decided not to hire me. And so then I said, well, if I'm going to take this and I'm going to be blacklisted, I might as well say all the things I believe. So let me affirm the femininity and the womanhood of all women, meaning uh, if they're feminine women, if they're masculine women, if they are transgender women, if they are queer women, let me just, I'm just going to go full send and do all of the things. And I have zero regrets. Like that was, if I'm going to say something about women, let it be true. Wow. Well, it really came across that way. And I, I, I've gotten so many people who've referenced that sermon. And I remember when uh, the elders came up with your name for the speaker for that weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. In my head, I'm thinking like, I hope she does it. (laughs) And that's why (laughs) I had Kel, like, that's why we talked. I was like, Kelly, you need to invite her. Because if I say, if I invite her, she may not do it. That's so funny. That's so funny. I probably would have done it, just so you know. I just needed it to come from someone else due to Mm -hmm. all of the stuff that was going on. So, Yeah, Um, there's definitely an interesting dynamic, too, with my husband still being a pastor of the Adventist Church. It's just, it's, you know, there is that interesting dynamic, but we have some very good advocates for us who recognize, again, we are two separate people with two different ministries, and it's okay that we're different, and it's okay that we support each other. So yeah. that's lovely. I mean, it sounds so easy when you say it that way. I mean, you would hope it would be that easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, not so always. Wha- 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I hear you. So last question, what have Mm -hmm. you enjoyed in your short time working here at Paradox? We started you here in January. And uh, what is it that you've enjoyed about this community? And what uh, do you hope for the future? And just tell us a little bit about your time here. Oh, my goodness. I I feel like I've said this so much that it's starting to become a cliche to people who have heard it. But I feel like working at Paradox has felt like coming home um, in so many ways. It's it's liberating. It's doing ministry in a, in a way that I firmly believe is helpful not only to the community, but to the greater community and the greater world. And so joining, uh, joining Paradox has been lovely. I've so enjoyed working with the, the Paradox Kids team. Um, and just I love the openness and this, this complete desire to have the tough conversations with kids, but doing it with intentionality for growth rather than for fear. And I love that I have been like, what if we try this? And what if we try this? And everyone's like, yes, let's try it. That's so, I just, that's such a gift. I, I don't know how to explain it for anyone who hasn't worked in the church world, but that's like, it's like a unicorn. It's like this magical unicorn <laughs> that isn't supposed to exist, but it does exist. And it's so cool. And um, yeah, my first sermon at Paradox was crazy. Just I was like, I'm going to bore the socks off of them with all of this history. But the reception was so well, like the reception was so good. And I was just like, maybe they're just being really nice. Or maybe they just really appreciate the fact that there's a backstory to all of this text. And I'm so excited. I'm with a group of people that appreciate the backstory. And I don't know, the, the paradox after dark was insane. Like I never, ever thought I'd be upstage up on stage as a pastor advocating for (laughs) women masturbation, for example, you know, like that just was, I, (laughs) what is happening? Um, This is crazy. And I think that's just kind of, I just, in some ways I feel like I'm in shock still every day. Like there's just this underlying shock. Like I can't, was this real? I'm, I'm like pinching myself. And so, yeah, it's just, I'm so, I'm excited about the future of Paradox. I'm working, beginning to work with Paradox Youth and meeting with them um, on Wednesday nights. And that has been really fun to establish relationships with that group of girls. And um, it's been good. It's been really good. And so I'm excited. I just, I have no idea where the future is going to be because I feel like everything I say, let's try, they say yes to. So that's going to be, that's going to lead to some crazy things. Yeah. Just know it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I felt the same thing too, where I'm like 38 minutes into like the historical context and archaeology of, of the city of Jericho. And people are like, oh, interesting. I'm like, really? Yeah. Are you really into this? <laughs> right. Are you sure? You're not just being nice. <laughs> and I think as long as it's visual, people yeah. will go wherever uh, the people of Paradox will go wherever you take them. Like, that's the thing I've learned. As long as you have some visual aid, it's like, Yes. They're, they're, they're game for it, which has been a lot of fun. Well, on that note, thanks for making my visuals for my first, my first sermon. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, so we, we got, I mean, before Adam was on staff, you know, it was just me as the, the preacher and mm-hmm. the number one feedback we got back from guest speakers was people always appreciated them and what they had to say. They just said, could they use more visual stuff? And <laughs> it's hard to invite somebody and then tell them, Hey, you need to use at least 60 slides. Like that's, that's not a good invitation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But when they're on staff, you could say, Hey, just use this many slides and mm-hmm. they'll be appreciative. And it's amazing how much that, that changes things in my opinion. 
Yes. I, I mean, it works from an education standpoint, right? It's a, yeah. it's the hitting the different learning styles. And I think that's brilliant. Yep. Hey, Manny, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I just want you to know that we love having you here at Paradox. And uh, yeah, we just look forward to seeing what you come up with um, in the youth department and with the kids. And we're just really excited about what the future holds and what you're going to work on. So thanks so much for being part of this church. Thanks for having me. It's been the best. Not a problem. And to everyone listening, thank you for listening. Uh, It might just be my mom and Mandy's mom listening at this point. So hello to both (laughs) of you. And we hope you have a great rest of your day wherever you may be.